Welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. I'm Dimitri Alperovich, Chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator at Geopolitics Think Tank in Washington, D.C. Today, I welcome back Justin Bronk, uh, excuse me, now Professor Justin Bronk, who is a senior fellow uh, for air power and technology at the Rusi Think Tank in the U.K., and now teaches at the Royal Norwegian Air Force Academy. Congratulations on the new appointment, Justin, and uh, welcome back to the show. I do have to tell you, by the way, that the show that you and I did with uh, Jack Watling back in November on the detailed analysis of the Russian uh, air war is one of our all-time favorites with the listeners. So thank you so much for coming back. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And I'm also very excited to have with us Dara Masakat, a friend whom I've been trying to get on the show for over a year now, Dara. So glad that we finally made it work. Dara is a senior policy researcher at the RAND Corporation and was formerly a senior analyst for Russian military capabilities at the Department of Defense. So welcome to the show, Dara. Thanks for having me. All right. So guys, I wanted to have you on because this has been a very eventful couple of weeks in the defense circles with these Discord leaks that have been popping up. But one thing in particular has been really interesting, and it's highlighted something that all of us have been thinking about for a while now. Dara and I have been talking privately about this, and it's been highlighting the problem that we've all been aware of, and that is that the Soviet stockpiles of interceptor missiles that the Ukrainians have for their air defense, namely the S-300 systems, long-range air defense systems, and the book medium-range interceptor missiles, are finite. And eventually they're going to run out of them and perhaps uh, may run out of them considerably sooner than, than uh, perhaps a lot of people have been expecting. So, Dar, let me start with you. What do you think the implications of this are for the war and for the Russian Air Force? You've been concerned about this issue for quite some time. Whenever this point is going to be reached that they're going to be out of these interceptors, what is that going to mean for Russian Air Force and for their ability to establish air superiority over the battle lines, but also over the rest of the country? Yeah, I, this is something that's been on my mind um, since before the war. I think I wrote something back in December before things kicked off. Um, fun fact, it was like something I did in the days running up to when my baby was being born. So, you know, the urge to get last minute things done is pretty intense. Um, at that time, I noted that Ukraine was going to need a lot of support defending the skies. These things are not infinite they originate in Russia and before that the Soviet Union. And it seems that there has been an effort underway to keep Ukraine supplied with these things. But again, it's talking we're talking about going into global stockpiles of these things from countries who are willing perhaps to share them. It's not infinite. What this means is um, if Russia is going to continue to launch missiles at Ukrainian cities or critical infrastructure targets or forces, Ukraine has to make decisions, and they're going to be increasingly difficult decisions about what to defend. Do I defend my cities? Do I defend my troops? When my concerns are when the strategic SAMs are depleted, um, that allows Russia to operate with relative safety at high altitudes. And I don't think the patriots can fill that gap, um, particularly at the number that we're talking about, and even from a technical capability perspective. And I'm glad that we have Justin on the line, too. I've He's he and Jack have, have written about this as well. So, Jack, there is one design bureau that produces currently interceptors for most of these Soviet air, air defenses, namely the S-300s. It's uh, Design Bureau Fakil in Russia. Is there any potential for anyone else to outside of Russia to produce these missiles? Has that been thought about over the last year as 
everyone has known that eventually Ukraine is going to run out of these interceptors, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it has been looked at. Um, clearly, a lot of the discussions on that are, are fairly sensitive. But um, without going into specifics, that there are just a lot of issues around whether um, you can get around the IP and uh, kind of financial issues uh, as well of setting up production lines um, either temporarily or uh, permanently in the West for systems um, either that, that Ukraine had production capacity for or trying to reverse engineer and produce uh, systems which Russia um, produces. Um, and it's again in, in that category of a lot of things where if it was priority number one and had been for a long time, it could be done. Um, there are di- plenty of difficulties around it. But that it it hasn't it, it's difficult enough that it hasn't attracted um, the the level of support that it would require because there were always more urgent priorities elsewhere, um, and of course setting up production for these sort of things it takes a long time. Um, so it's not something you can suddenly rush into production. Um, a lot more effort I think has gone into finding ways to boost numbers of Western systems that can be produ- that can be produced and or um, so, you know, supplied and then backfilled from from Western inventories, but you know it's worth remembering Ukraine um, went into this war despite being obviously uh, the 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 kind of the David and the David and Goliath comparison. Ukraine did go into this war with a by by Western European by by Western standards and European standards in particular a very large um, GBAD uh, arsenal, you know, ground based air defenses. Yeah, ground based air defense arsenal. So, um, you know. <laughs> By most NATO standards, NATO having been used to having air superiority for the, at least the last thirty years, um, you know, Ukraine actually had a, has a large um, surface to missile inventory, and so it's not easy for us to backfill uh, or replace those systems, at least one for one, um, from Western inventories, just because we, you know, Patriot is expensive. Uh, it's long range, but it's also um, there isn't enough of it for U.S. requirements, and also there are several U.S. allies who are under regular um, ballistic missile attack: um, Saudi Arabia, UAE, um, and let's Israel. not forget about Taiwan. No, and of course, Taiwan. And and so you know, the, for Patriot, which is really the only kind of system which has been a mainstay of Western capability over the past several decades, because we've concentrated on that ballistic missile threat. Um, where we have invested in, in surface-to-air missile systems, it's been against ballistic missiles rather than cruise or, or, or aircraft. Um, that Patriot system is is still not available in sufficient numbers for U.S. needs, let alone traditional Allied needs, and so it's not that it, there isn't the capacity there to backfill all of those long-range strategic SAMs, which which Ukraine currently relies on for a lot of its in-depth defense. Um, those S three hundred PSPT and and V one systems. So let, let's. Give, give a little primer, Justin, quickly for our audience, because there's been a lot of different types of Western air defense systems going to Ukraine. You've had the IRST's from Germany and others going in. You've had the NASAMs. You have the Patriots, as you mentioned, Hawks, RBS 70s, manpad systems from, from Sweden, and then the Stingers, obviously. So when you look at that whole complement of different systems, talk us through like the different capabilities and, and the numbers that we're talking about than where the gaps might lie. 
so the the kind of upper end of what's been sent so far, um, Standfast, the Patriot, uh, I think two batteries of Patriot, which are which are going in um, imminently. Uh, those are obviously longer ranged assets, but very much, as I said, focused on the the ballistic missile defense um, space. Although they are uh, fairly capable against aircraft. Um, but the the kind of upper end of what's what's there now is the NASAMS and uh, Iris T SLM. Uh, so both of those are medium range systems. Uh, they utilize, in effect, adapted air to air missiles um, for ground launch, and they typically have a very good probability of kill against Russian cruise missiles uh, and um, potentially are very lethal against aircraft as well but only within a, a relatively limited um, sort of area. So given how huge Ukraine is, these are systems which can protect something fairly well from cruise missiles um, that they tend not to be used against Shahids because they're, they're too expensive uh, in terms of the ammunition. Shahids are the Iranian the, the, drones. Yeah. Exactly. Um, the, the Shahid 136 or, or Garam 2 as the, the Russians call it. Um, those tend to be handled by lower end systems. So those Western SAMs, um, they, they, they work very well against cruise missiles and, and uh, would be quite lethal against aircraft, but they only cover a relatively limited geographic area because they're medium range. And so given how huge Ukraine is, they're not um, a, a solution to that, that full spectral coverage that Ukraine requires. And it very much goes back to what Dara was saying at the beginning of, you know, they are having to be very, very careful about how they prioritize what is defended by those systems. And of course, there just aren't very many of them because, as I said, you know, NATO has had air superiority for 30 years over anywhere it was going to fight. And so those sorts of medium range um, counter cruise and counter air um, SAM systems are just not something we've invested in. So there aren't very many of them, which means that as you look at how many could be pushed to Ukraine quickly, the question very quickly becomes how quickly can you make them? Um, rather than where are you where are you necessarily sending them from uh, where they currently exist? And how the, many the and how many systems? And how quickly you can make the interceptors for them, right? The interceptors are a little bit less. Uh, well, so the Iris TSLM interceptors uh, are problematic from an from a, an ammunition supply point of view because they're, they're having to be made. But uh, the 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 really sort of useful thing about NASAM specifically is that it it shoots AMRAM, so the M120 AMRAM, which is the uh, sort of default um, primary medium-range air-to-air missile which Western Air Forces use. And so um, generally be, be firing older model AMRAM, so a, A's or B's, um, almost certainly B's, but um, as, a, as a result, there's actually quite a large inventory of those things. It's one of the areas where we do have a reasonable supply of them. Um, so NASAM's, the, the bottleneck is, is launchers rather than than munitions, generally speaking, um, for for the the other stuff, um, you know, Croatal, RBS seventy, uh, HVM from the UK, uh, so our, our vehicle mounted Star Streak, and uh, man pads of various kinds, so Martlet, Star Streak, uh, Stinger, Purin, um, all of those systems are capable enough, but they're very short range systems, so they they are useful for providing local cover to battlefield units all point defense around specific um, infrastructure targets but they are um, fundamentally limited in range and in altitude um, where they can where they can engage um, particularly if those targets are fast because 
the faster a target that you're trying to intercept is, generally speaking, the the shorter your effective range will be with a given missile. Um, all of which is to say, the West has some backfill capability for tactical surface-to-air missiles, so essentially book class um, tactical SAMs and and lower, so things like OSA, but not in huge numbers, albeit the ones that are supplied are generally better than what they're replacing. But in terms of replacing the S-300s, um, the only kind of analog so far is Patriot, and there's a very limited supply of that that can be spared. Very helpful. Dara, as we've been talking since the beginning of this war, you kept telling me, where's the VKS? Where's the Russian Airspace Forces, which their Air Force is a component? And obviously the air defenses have limited their ability to engage on the battlefield and provide significant cover to the ground forces in Ukraine. Do you expect the Russian Air Force to get much more aggressive as the stocks of the air defense interceptors are dwindling in Ukraine? And what what effect do you think that might have on the battlefield? Yeah, so let me let me go back in time a little bit. You know, in the early days, um, when things were chaotic coming through the wires about what was happening, there were a lot of questions about where are the VKS, what are they doing, um, you know, why is the army going in so early when the air force has not finished their tasks? Like, why is everything out of sync and out of order here? And when we know a lot about that now. Um, and again, um, you know, many props to the work that Justin has done on that. And his reports are excellent. If you haven't read them yet, you should. Um, they give us a lot of detail about the thinking going on. And the VKS was working very hard. And I don't want to steal the thunder from his report. I mean, he's here. He should talk about it. But the VKS was working very hard um, at some of the deep strike tasks. And they ended up getting pivoted off that to support the um you know, the, the inbound army, that was, the columns were in trouble and they had to do close air support. And then you saw them getting chewed up in various Stinger envelopes, various SAM envelopes. And ever since that point, the VKS has been essentially used very conservatively because they don't necessarily have a ton of solutions here, what's going on. Um, you know, I've said this in a, a few forums and I'll say it again here. Um, it's really wild when you stand back and, and think about this. You know, the Russians have mobilized 300,000 people and they are in the Donbass fighting and yet they don't actually commit the VKS in a major you know, um, major way to provide support to those people. And I have to conclude, and again, this is a very cynical place that I'm at at this point, a year plus in, is that the airframes are irreplaceable. The people, you can find more. And this is when this is an age-old issue in Russia, right? That people, people's lives are worthless. I'm not trying to laugh about it, but it's like you know you don't want to be so cynic. It's cynical. It's terrible to say it, but you hear the Russian defense minister saying things like, "I have you know 25 million people I could pull from strategic reserve." You know, these he views that as his asset pool, and only uh, you know several hundred airframes. So those are precious. But still, even now. Um, we don't see the VKS really playing a dominant role, and there's a few reasons for it, you know, mostly the SAM envelope. They are experimenting, and that experimentation has been constant. And lately, we've been seeing them do um, experimentations with different types of rockets that they're able to launch from slightly farther back um, on their side. They've been using them near Bakhmut. They've been using them now, increasingly near Hassan. 
and the South. So they're starting to do some things with tactical aviation. I'm still not a major commitment yet. That being said, uh, final point, you know, as a force, the VKS is still intact. Like their losses have been single digit percentage overall. You know, yes, they've lost squadrons of helicopters and fixed wing, but all in all, that's a single digit percentage of the total force. It's still a force in being, it's not being used. And this is my concern about what happens to Ukrainian SAMs if those skies are opened up, this is still something that they have in reserve. There are some who think that, oh, Russia wouldn't use them because that's all they have to defend against NATO. I, I don't know if I subscribe to that view. I'm still trying to sort through what this all means. I'm curious for, for Justin's thoughts on this, too. Yeah, Justin, what do you think? I mean, Putin keeps talking about the fact that he's already fighting NATO in his mind. So do you think he would keep that in reserve or not? Um. I, I don't think the VKS is is being held back or would be held back uh, in reserve for, for the sake of other contingencies. I think it's being held held on the back burner, as it were, as Dara said, largely because they don't have options um, that are particularly good against those, those tactical SAMs um, that Ukraine is still fielding. So because they don't have any game uh, that really works against in the in the Siad Diad space. They can do a little bit of, of suppression of enemy air defenses, but not really the destruction bit. The the destruction is is mostly being accompanied accomplished by um, Orlan tens with with uh, you know queuing in artillery, ballistic missiles, or or, or Lancet three. And the suppression munitions. they're able to do somewhat with electronic warfare, right? To some degree, but also they. I mean, they they, they do they do certainly um, conduct EW, although. A lot of that blanket EW effect that they're able to apply um, for for seed or other purposes also messes with their own sensors and communications. So, particularly in the TAC airspace, they they have to be a bit careful with with not f uh, you know committing fratricide in the EW space. Um, that, that's part of the problem, it, isn't it? When you're fighting a, a military that's armed with the same systems that you have, right, using the same frequencies. <laughs> Yeah, but it's also just, you know, Russian kit, um, they don't do very good OT&E, uh, so uh, operational test and evaluation work. Um, so even on individual platforms, the EW uh, systems will often interfere with, with sensors, for example. Um, so, and, and, and that gets worse when you look at, um, you know, for example, EW um, systems that are operated by the ground forces uh, interfering with, with Air Force assets. Um they also, but they, they they fire quite a lot of KH-31P and older KH-58 uh, anti-radiation missiles um, for the seed role. But that you know, Ukrainian SAM operators have pretty short elimination periods and move regularly for precisely that reason. So they don't have a very good kill ratio, and as a result, committing the VKS more would just result in in losses that, therefore, there's no real point in taking um, until that SAM uh, coverage is is reduced to a point where it's not not effective but i think you know the the war is is pretty existential uh, i think for the at least in terms of how the russian leadership sees it um for them not necessarily russia itself but um although it's it, it, i mean we could have a discussion i'm sure um you guys you probably know no better than i do um how differentiated that is or not in their minds of their own regime survival or leadership survival advice the, they the, certainly the think that, whether it's reality or not, that's almost beside the point. 
Right. Um, but so, you know, g- given the stakes for the Russian leadership of, of this invasion, having made the catastrophic mistake of starting it, um, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of all in. And so I don't think they're, they're holding back or would hold back um, bits of the force for another contingency. I mean, frankly, if, if they were actually worried about NATO um, in terms of, you know, direct involvement outside of some sort of, of um, entanglement that was unintentional, um, they wouldn't have drawn down their forces in Kaliningrad the way they have. They'd have protested more about Finland joining. Um, you know, I, I, I think, in fact, the lack of response there and the fact that they're willing to draw down their forces on the NATO border uh, in the north and in the, 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 the well, their west, <laughs> so far really gives the lie to quite how, well, it just shows how disingenuous those those arguments about um, that they sometimes put forward and that useful idiots in the West sometimes put forward about um, Russia being provoked by by a perception of threat from NATO. They don't fear NATO. They know we're defensive. Um, they fear accidentally getting into a war with us. And I think longer term, they, they fear the balance of power there. But you know they they they're not worried about escalation on their on their flank with NATO at this point because if they were they wouldn't have drawn down their forces the way they have um so the air force i think would definitely be 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 committed much more heavily if they had a chance um if if that sam coverage is is allowed to degrade um to a point where it no longer poses a a, a prohibitive threat at medium level then i think we'll see quite heavy vks involvement and as dara says it hasn't been um seriously attrited uh although it's worth pointing out that while their fighter force is pretty much intact their um the attrition rates on their ground attack fleets are actually quite significant um it's 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 not that they're they're not still a big problem but you know if you look at the the su-34 uh fullback fleet um you know they've lost about 12 percent of the fleet which is not nothing um and Equally for the the Su-25s, yes, they had a lot in storage, but they actually only modernized about 80, I think it was 84 Su- Su-25 to SM standard and another 28 to 32 um, uh, more modernized Su-25 SM-3s. So given they've lost, I think, about 25 at this point, you know, that that is a really significant chunk of that fleet. Um but they, they you know, they do have more airframes in storage for the for the, the Su-25. So um yeah, they, their ground attack fleets have taken not not insignificant attrition, um, but they're still, you know, a, a significant threat in being. Dara, there, there's a tendency among the Twitterati to assume that because the Russians have been so incompetent in ground warfare that all parts of the military are degraded by corruption and incompetence, and that even if they get a free slate here to operate their air force, that it won't make that much of a difference where do you sit on that question i think we have to break it up by tasks so if you look at um you know what i think they could probably do if they had the ability to operate um over ukrainian skies i my concerns are things like um you know the reintroduction of medium or heavy bombers just dumping um entire cargo holds of dumb bombs on cities like they did in Syria. I mean, there's, you know, there's cities in Syria that no longer exist. Um, so that is a that is a concern to me. Do I think that they will miraculously become better at close air support? No, um, not because of, you know, there, there's the attrition Justin just talked about. 
but also this isn't something that was uh, heavily trained for in their training programs. I, I don't think that there's a ton of competence there. Plus, there's too many stingers and everything else at those lower altitudes that will consistently be a problem, um, no matter what happens to some of the more strategic SAMs. So those kind of things, I, I don't think that they will excel at. Um, if they um, are able to, uh, even if they're able to um, operate at higher altitudes and do different kinds of missions, I think about some of the successes that they had in Syria. Those were enabled by ground forward air control teams. So these would be like Russian special forces teams or, or whatnot operating and calling in coordinates and everything else. Those have not, there, I don't know what is going on with that force. I think it is heavily, heavily attrited. I think they were used and uh, used for other missions early on and the casualty levels were high. They were going after different kinds of targets. Um, GFAC has not been a significant part of this war that, that I can see. So that means that they're not going to be able to hit a lot of things with attrition, even though they have the advanced aircraft available to do so. Hit things with precision, excuse me, even though they have the aircraft and the airframes available for that. Um, GFAC for, for the listeners is ground forward air control, right? And in terms of like, you know, corruption and impact on, on their readiness, I mean, sure, it, it doesn't it doesn't just go <laughs> and uh, fester around in the Russian army and Russian airborne. It, it, this is present everywhere. Um, we, we know that from all of the debacles going on in the Black Sea Fleet after, you know, in the run up to and after the, the sinking of the Moskva and how they handled that. I mean, there's there's a sickness going on inside their military culture that is not um, force specific. That being said, um, you know, the Air Force, I think, um, just by nature of what it is and what they do, um, tends to be um, not quite so adherent and stuck in the Soviet past quite as hard um, as the Army is. Um, the Army is still very culturally dominant within the Russian military, and I think we see that in terms of you know, the Air Force should be uh, a, a major driving force, and it never really was. And it's like they didn't really know how to use it. And I, I think I mean, folks at Rusi's report says that it's like subordinate in some ways um, to the Army. So where does it go from here? Uh, I, you know, that's a larger question on, you know, where does the Russian military go from here when the active phase of the war is done? Um, you know, I think the Army, the Army must be rebuilt because it's destroyed. And what does that mean for um, you know, balancing um, different kinds of threats and, and who gets procurement rubles and who doesn't? It's uh, my bets on the Army. Justin, where, where do you stand on this question? We've talked in the past on the last podcast with you about the challenges they face with lack of tankers, with maintenance levels, and the impact on the fatigue of the crew. So what do you think the Air Force at this point is still capable of if the skies open up, if you will? Yeah. Uh, so I think, you know, very much as, as Dara said, the the large large quantities of dumb ordnance um, is is mostly what they'd be be doing if the skies were were more open. Um, but it, you know, it's worth it's worth pointing out that because the war on the ground is really positional at this stage, it's it's not a, a maneuver fight. Um, things are pretty static. It's not particularly difficult to find where um, you know opposing positions are, but also crucially, it's very. It would be comparatively easy for the Russians to spot um, because they know where to look 
spot uh, concentrations of forces massing for uh, counterattacks, localized or otherwise, um, spot kind of logistics and repair hubs, railheads, ammunition dumps, all of these things which currently the Ukrainians are able to, for the most part, stay ahead of the Russian targeting cycle on. Those are things which, if you were able to tote around at, say, 15,000 feet outside of the manpads envelope, um, a few tens of kilometers beyond the front lines, those could be, even with relatively limited Russian kind of aerial optics, things like the Platan, uh, spotted because they'll know roughly where to look. And also, for example, things like HIMARS um, in particular, which is still a crucial part of Ukraine's ability to stop Russia being able to concentrate forces and ammunition where it needs to, on its own side of the lines, HIMARS is really visible when it fires. Um, those those missiles make a significant plume, uh, but and particularly at night, they're very, very visible. So if uh, aircraft Russian aircraft were able to, or are allowed to get to the stage where they can essentially um, patrol, uh, go on kind of interdiction patrols, um, several tens of kilometers beyond the lines at medium level, they wouldn't have to spend long in that Stinger threat envelope, um, in, in the, the Manpads threat envelope, to conduct relatively accurate dumb bomb and rocket deliveries on HIMARS um, and and you know other visible systems when they fire. Same for for artillery um, and Russian defensive uh, aid suites, so flares, chaff um, being dispensed automatically when when the systems on the aircraft detect a missile launch. Those generally perform pretty well, with the exception of the Camel Fifty Two helicopter fleet, which seems to have a terrible DAS. Um, but defensive aid systems are, are pretty good. The reason Russian aircraft are still taking losses to manpads is because of the sheer number fired. It's not that the probability of kill on any one is particularly high. And so if, again, the Russians are able to toast around at medium altitude outside the manpads envelope and only need to dive down to, to hit targets for, you know, 15 to 20 seconds uh, before pulling before coming back up to altitude, the the defensive aid systems are probably good enough that the loss rates wouldn't be too bad um unfortunately at that point to to manpads so that would be my my biggest concern is the battlefield impact i think the the bombing of cities absolutely if they if they are able to get to start penetrating that far um they will absolutely go that route and and we've seen what that looks like in, in chechnya in, in syria um and of course we've seen what it looked like in mariupol as well uh, and Kharkiv early on in the war, so you know we know what that we know what that um, conops is. But I think the likelihood is probably that the deep airspace in Ukraine will remain pretty dangerous for Russian aircraft for for for, for the foreseeable, because, because you will have these Western systems, right? Still, well, partly that, but also, um, you know, it, I, Ukraine is uh, very unlikely to, um, and I stress this is not from any any of their their documents or anything um but just you know from a logical point of view one would not expect ukraine to keep firing its systems at the current rate until they just completely run out what you would expect instead is them to start consolidating uh and prioritizing defenses further into the country and in, and in specific high value areas in other words they will lessen the sam coverage and to try and control um, the the expenditure rate and, and eke out their remaining stocks before they completely run out. So you know that defense in depth with the the really long range systems and and some of those western systems I think will remain longer than the the tactical edge. The problem with the tactical edge is 
um, that's where the VKS could make a serious difference. Um, you know, we, we've had a lot of discussions uh, in the air power world about why air power has not um, been a significant factor in the war so far. Uh, and I think there are seriously inflated expectations put on what Ukraine might be able to achieve with, with some Western fighter aircraft in that regard. Um, I don't think that they, they can be enabled with Western aircraft, given the, the constraints that that, that would in, that, that would be there to change the battlefield sort of nature or, or the, the, the tide of the war. But the VKS could. So the, the, I think the, the goal from an air power perspective has to be to keep air power irrelevant in this war. Um, because if the Russians are able to establish that medium altitude freedom, um, sort of several tens of kilometers over the front lines, that will be a massive problem for the Ukrainian army. So you both point a pretty dire picture here for the Ukrainians if this comes to pass. We've talked about how the Western air defenses are not really a solution because of low numbers, of particular patriots that you can provide. What other options exist? Let's start with you, Justin. There's been this long-running debate about F-16s. You've argued that Gripens are a much better aircraft, although there are limited numbers of those. But are Western fighter jets a solution to try to keep the VKS at distance? Or what, what else can we help the Ukrainians with? What else can they do to minimize the threat of this scenario? I mean, I think the... So on fighters, uh, I think getting them a squadron's worth even uh, of Western fighters could have an enormous impact in buying out a lot of that risk from the VKS because the Russians have been very cautious in the air. As Astara said there, they don't keep doing things which are just losing them airplanes. Um, they they back off. They you know experiment with other tactics and work out other things um, and then try something new. And, you know, interestingly, a lot of the Ukrainian feedback has been that the VKS is the most professional, the most reactive part of the Russian military. They learn lessons, they adapt quicker um, and more responsibly than the ground forces or the or the navy. Um, and in that sense, you know, you wouldn't have to have a a large number of successful air to air engagements from a small number of Western fighters against Russian combat air patrols or or, or uh, attack sorties near the lines for them to back off, at least for a while. Um, so in that sense, a small number of fighters could have a huge impact um, in terms of uh, buying out some of that risk from the VKS becoming a, a dominant battlefield shaping influence uh, in the coming months as that SAM ammunition continues to, to run uh, lower. And, and you, still, you hand, still believe that, if particularly if it's a small number that's required, that the Swedish Gripens, if they could get them, are the best solution, right? Absolutely. Um, so the, the 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 biggest issue with the F-16 um, is, yes, it's got a much larger pool uh, to, to draw spares and aircraft and training and all sorts from. Uh, in that sense, it's it's easier. Um, but the, the, there are two big issues. But the main one is the uh, foreign object de- debris and, and landing gear fragility. So the, the way that the air intake is, is positioned on the F-16 underneath it's a very large single air intake right underneath, right under the nose. And so it, and if you actually, if you've ever seen an F-16 spooling up on a wet day, 
you can actually see the vortex um, that that's created as it sucks everything from the ground directly into it. So F-16s typically require very um, clean, very well-maintained air bases. And the landing gear is also fairly lightweight um, because it's it's designed for a good thrust-to-weight ratio. There is no more weight on the jet than there needs to be. So compared to something like an F-18, which is designed to be slammed on and off carriers, or Russian aircraft, which are designed to be operated from very um, rough strips, the, the undercarriage is pretty light. Um, it also, you know, it, it, yeah, ground handling is an issue. So basically what that means is while Ukrainian air bases could absolutely be adapted and have in the past been used for temporary F-16 detachments, um, you know, in, in exchange visits and things, um, you have to do a lot of work to get those um, Ukrainian old Soviet pattern runways to a clean enough state uh, to use an F-16 without high risk of, of foreign object debris going in and damaging the engines. Um, and that is therefore visible. Um, also, a lot of the smaller strips that Ukraine is using um, to keep its its air force dispersed and moving around to avoid it being targeted uh, are not necessarily long enough, um, or at least not the right length that you would want for an F-16 with tanks plus, so with fuel tanks plus, um, you know, a multi-role loadout. Um, so you'd be looking at resurfacing work on runways and potentially extension work, all of which is highly visible um, from orbit, uh, as well as you know, Russian human sources. And whereas currently the Ukrainian Air Force isn't really being targeted um, with any particular priority, um, Russia, the Russia has limited numbers of, of standoff missiles, um, that's because it doesn't pose a massive threat. Um, and so the moment that Western jets start coming in, you, you, you would probably need to expect that, that targeting policy to change. Uh, all of Ukraine's air bases are, are within reach because the whole country is within reach of Russia's ballistic and, and cruise missiles. And indeed, even if you put Patriot, um, you know, there won't be much Patriot in, in Ukraine. There'll be other priorities for it. But even if you were to put Patriot to defend a main base that you were trying to set up F-16 ops on, the Russians still have Kinshal, so the, the KH-47M2, um, the, the air-launched Iskander, and if, uh, well, air-launched uh, ballistic missile, um, so that that comes in very fast with quasi ballistic maneuvering capabilities, and indeed the the later model nine M seven twenty three, so Iskander fired ballistic missile that has penetration aids um, and quasi ballistic maneuvering capabilities. You know that's that's a pretty hard task even for Patriot, and so um, essentially Russia has the ability to put craters in things that it wants. Um, it can't do loads of them. Um, but if you're having to centralize something like F-16 around one or two bases because you can only prepare one or two to the required standard within the resource constraints, that's quite a vulnerable posture. The other issue is whether um, uh, America would clear export of later model AMRAMs because um, that's the air-to-air -air missile. Because for the, the Russian Air Force uh, fighter combat air patrols so the caps are at medium to high altitude um and often uh low level low supersonic or at least would go rapidly to supersonic if they were engaged now what that means is that you need a lot of energy remaining in the missile um when it gets near those fighters in order to complete an intercept and so when you look at wikipedia or something and i i've seen Reznikov and others um quoting ranges like 180 kilometers for amram that's not the reality 
um, some of those ranges that you might see written down of you know 100 plus kilometers kind of thing that is in an ideal scenario with a target that's not aware that's coming directly towards the shooter and the shooter being at 55 60,000 feet and supersonic when they launch so the missile has loads of energy and is essentially going downhill and is also being fired right up in the the very thin air at high altitude where there's very little drag um, basically the so, shoot shoot the fish in a barrel scenario right um I, but but that's how that's what the amram was was designed for because you know that that's the way that f16 and f15 and now f22 um want to operate for for the u.s air force you know that's the doctrinal um sort of aim for amram is to be very high very fast and use all that energy to lob amrams as far as possible and the missile is designed to take very good advantage of those sort of kinematic uh circumstances but in ukraine the the very very serious russian surface to air threat um so those s400s s300 v4s um the the medium range sa17s uh, short range sa15s etc that that gbad laydown is multi-layered and it's very very lethal um to really significant distances behind the front lines and so what that means is that any western fighter would also be doing exactly what the ukrainians are doing right now in the sense that they would be flying very low and so that missile instead of starting out at 50 60,000 feet and supersonic will be starting at maybe a couple of hundred feet and probably subsonic or transonic and it's then going to have to not only start out relatively low and slow in that dense air where there's lots of drag so you know a lot of that missile burn for the, the seven to eight seconds that the missile burns will be used up just you know uh, overcoming that drag but it will also have to climb because the target those russian caps are high and so your actual effective range is going to be very very limited compared to sort of sticker um ranges that you see quoted and so for f-16 for example to be effective air to air against uh and this goes for any um any western aircraft um at least one that isn't stealthy for, for them to be effective against those russian caps they're going to have to have the longest ranged air-to-air missiles we can give them even something like a late model amram might only give you effective parity in in effective range with something like aa12 so r77 or or aa13 so the the r37m um which is now one of the the regular um missiles being fired at ukrainian aircraft um and there's a question then okay so that means amram probably late model charlie or maybe delta is the us going to clear that for export to ukraine because as soon as you start firing air-to-air missiles at the russians some of them will miss inevitably you you, you don't expect a high probability of kill with with miss with air-to-air missiles that's not the way air-to-air engagements typically work you'll fire one to put the enemy on the defensive and then you'll keep closing the distance you'll fire a second one you maybe fire a third one um and so it's about wearing them down and and, and getting to that point where the engagement happens uh where, where you manage to actually intercept them but as a result, you, you would expect some of those missiles to be coming down in Russian territory. And just as with all the other weapon systems that the Russians have captured, not only will they examine it and exploit it and you know update their own defensive systems, update their tactics maybe, but they'll also supply it to the Iranians, to the Chinese, to whoever you know wants to pay them for access in whatever way to that technology. And so for the US... Late model AMRAM is what the US Air Force currently relies on for air superiority requirements against China. And so there is a real cost to agreeing to supply late model AMRAM to to the Ukrainian Air Force in terms of 
definitive sort of measurable impact on US national security requirements. So that's another argument for Gripen um, or another another European fighter that's compatible with it because while the same argument also applies to the European Meteor missile, which incidentally has a longer effective range and is also because it, it has a ramjet, so it, it's it's um, it's got power throughout the, the flight. It doesn't just have that initial rocket burn. So it actually loses less effective range than AMRAM from being fired low and slow. Um, but it's also a case of, yes, it would compromise the tech, but it would compromise tech that is primarily relied on by Europeans for deterrence against Russia. And there, the argument is much easier to make of saying, well, yes, but Russia needs to be beaten now. So keeping something in the cupboard for, for deterrence against Russia isn't necessarily uh, a reason to not do this. Whereas for the US, looking at the China threat, it, it, it's it's a, a more difficult trade-off. So yeah, I think Gripen, it's more tolerant of foreign object debris. It's designed to be much more capable of operations from short and rough strips um, because the Swedish dispersal model, it's much easier to maintain. It's got an internal electronic warfare suite that's very specifically built around um, degrading Russian fire control radars because again, this is designed, it's an aircraft designed f- from the ground up to be used dispersed, outnumbered against Russia um, in a defensive role. Um, and it's Meteor compatible. It's also got better automation in terms of the way that the the systems display information to the pilots, which some really experienced Western pilots don't like because it takes away some of the granular information. They want to do their, 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 they, they want to kind of have them do their processes mentally. It makes it easier, But right? for converting people across, yeah. having an aircraft that does a lot of that mental maths for you in terms of missile ranges, fuel, you know, positional data, all of that stuff, um, it would also make the conversion easier. Uh, the key is, I mean, you know, still the UK and France would have to clear export of Meteor, um, which is by no means guaranteed. Uh, France is likely to be the, the stumbling block there. Um, and Sweden would have to be funded and, and you know, collaboratively assisted um, with any supply, because especially since Turkey is still blocking their accession to NATO, um, that would have to be dealt with. But they're, they're, they... You, you can't expect them to do it on their own. Yeah. Um, so it would have to be a sort of joint funding from multiple European and potentially American partners with, you know, explicit British and French support on the weapons and, you know, that kind of thing. So so that it's a European project rather than just Sweden. Um, and you would still be only looking at, you know, maybe 10 to 15 jets that you might be able to get from from reserves, from spares, um, from from the manufacturer that the, you know by diverting perhaps other other orders but that's enough to make a serious difference in the air um there are also plenty of potential asymmetric ways you can go after the russian air force um but i, I i've been talking a long time i'll, I'll let her jump in absolutely fascinating we should tell our uh, listeners that you're absolutely not a salesperson for Gripen, right nope. you're just a big fan of the aircraft for the reasons you've you've described particularly for this particular mission and problem dara yep. let me ask you this we have not seen the the Russians take out the Ukrainian Air Force so far, even though they've faced considerable challenges that Justin has just enumerated in terms of the range of air defenses that the Russians have brought to bear to this conflict, and the VKS is still flying high, uh, even in standoff missions. Why do you think they've not been able to completely destroy 
the old MiGs that the Ukrainians are still flying. And it's, it's really amazing that they've been able to keep them operational despite all the challenges that they've had. And obviously they've, they've had losses in those air-to-air engagements and from the air defenses, but they still are able to operate on a daily basis. And that's quite remarkable. Yeah, let me, can I respond to your previous question and then I'll, sure, I'll yeah, please to this one. Um, you know, in, in terms of, you know, thinking about you know, how Ukraine can face down this problem, there's other asymmetric ways to deal with it. So Russia has major limitations in terms of the number of launchers. And you see Ukraine trying to grapple with this problem, whether that's the Black Sea Fleet, which launches your caliber cruise missiles, has a limited ability um, at any time to launch more than, I think, the maximum any of those uh, ships can do down there is in the single digits. And then you also see um, attacks on Russian bomber bases um, inside Russia. They're going after the launchers. It, this is a more efficient way, if we're just talking about efficiency here, to cope with this problem rather than sit there and every two weeks or every two and a half weeks, there's another inbound salvo of 40 or 50 um, objects of various um, age or, you know, drones or, or whatever that they have to shoot down. So they're trying to go after the launchers themselves. The Black Sea Fleet is a major choke point. The Russians have brought in assets from the Caspian flotilla to try to bolster their capacity to shoot calibers. Um, if those ships are disabled or neutralized in some way where they can no longer launch calibers, Russia cannot bring in additional naval assets into the Black Sea. The Turks have closed the straits under the Montreal Convention. So that's or, one. Or alternatively, Dara, you don't have to go after the ships. You could go after the port facilities where they load the calibers onto the ships as well, right? Exactly. And you know, there have been attempts at that. We've, we've seen it. Um, we've seen the aftermath. Um, the Russians, you know, learn from those experiences, perhaps a little slowly, but they eventually learn. Um, you know, there also have been um, attacks on different routes um, to deliver munitions to the front line. Russian logistics is adapting to that, too. It's not uh, working efficiently. It's working very hard, but it's still working. Um, so, you know, there is there is an asymmetric way to cope with this problem. It just means that um, Ukraine has to be able to arrange uh, very sensitive targets well inside Russia and um, in the Black Sea. The Russians have adapted in some ways to that, too. They have a lot of air bases, and they're pulling some of these assets back um, after a couple events have happened inside the Russian Federation. And, of course, we all saw the memes of all the panseers going on top of all these buildings and everything else inside Moscow, but that that is their response. Um, those are um, point defense systems. They're going to bolster those facilities. They made mistakes um, they're going to try to not make them. Uh, I'm sure they'll leave some vulnerabilities open um, in that sense. Um, in terms of why why the Ukrainian air, air Force is still flying, Russia has a major problem going after um, dynamic targets and relocatable targets. And this comes back to structural reasons. Their ISR has serious limitations, whether that's airborne or whether that's orbital. Um, those targets move um they have, I'm not going to help them improve their targeting, but they've made questionable targeting decisions on Ukrainian air bases um, from the start of the war. And I'm not, not going to offer them free advice on how they can improve that. Um, but it tells but, but me they, that but they, they, they have the they A50 AWACS, right? So they do, wh- they do, but they, they have a small number of them, right? And they have to be available for many other missions if Russia needs them. So they can't you know, plunge that asset all in on Ukraine and, and lose more of them if they only have like, you know, eight functioning platforms to do. 
Um, so I, I think what we're seeing here, I mean, Russia, <laughs> there are so many problems with their targeting cycle. Like they can't even go after HIMARS despite prioritizing this now since June. I mean, yes, HIMARS are mobile systems, but like this was a, this was a MOD priority, neutralize these 16 systems and they haven't done it. And yet they claim that they have, I think, what is it, 210% of HIMARS they claim that they have destroyed, but they actually have destroyed They've zero. overachieved the plan, right? <laughs> overachieved the plan by 210%. But again, this goes back to Russian BDA. And there's their battle damage assessment. Um, you know, whether, um, you know, it's re relying on pilots or relying on ground units to report accurately and honestly upwards of, yes, I destroyed my target today. I mean, it's clearly not happening. Um, you know, things are things are coming into the system that are junk and, you know, rattling around in Moscow and influencing their assessments of things. I just don't think, um, given those limitations, that they are going to risk um, firing a handful of KH-101s or calibers at an airfield and, you know, it, it takes the missile however many, you know, minutes to get there. Um, at least if it's a cruise missile, it'll take some time and having those assets relocate and then it's basically a wasted strike. When it's, a, in their perspective, a sure bet to hit a stationary target like a power station or a city or a wastewater treatment plant. I mean, they know where it is. It's fixed. It's not defended um, or defended very lightly and they'll just keep going after it. Um, there, I would caution though that, you know, there is, there is the view um, that, oh, Russia's precision strike campaign to knock out Ukrainian electricity is a failure. And it is, I mean, it, te it worked temporarily, but then the Ukrainians were able to mitigate the impacts through a variety of means in that sense, it hasn't worked. In the sense of firing missiles continuously at Ukraine and forcing Ukrainian air defenses to expend interceptors to knock back these these Russian missiles, that is successful. And you could think about that in the sense of an alternative method to suppress Ukrainian air defenses or seed. Seed. Um, it's that secondary. Um, that I guess from the Russian perspective, a secondary benefit of all of these missile strikes is that over time you force them to make these choices. And you know, I again that kind of brings us back full circle to the to the start. So last question, Justin, and that is the drones that we haven't really talked much about. They're coming in in large quantities from Iran. These kamikaze drones they're they're causing damage, obviously, to Ukrainian infrastructure. The Russians look to be producing more of their own drones as well. How is Ukraine doing dealing with that problem? And, uh, you know, are the Skynex systems that the Germans are sending, looks like the Israelis may be helping as well. Is that going to help to neutralize the unmanned uh, aerial system problem that they face? Um, so in terms of the, the loitering munitions side of things, so the, the Garan or, or Shahid um, loitering munitions, those uh, are being broadly uh, pretty successfully intercepted these days um in particular ukraine has had a lot of success with with its mobile um short-range air defense teams um usually with something like a shilka or or a gepard um as well as um man pads and or um you know even sort of dushkas so heavy machine guns and searchlights uh also because so they they're they're They've got some clever apps so that where where people can you know ordinary people can essentially 
quickly report in sightings of of UAVs, missiles, um, aircraft um, into a sort of centralized um, uh, data gathering uh, function. And so they're getting better at tracking them. And one of the benefits of Ukraine being so huge is that in order to strike um, targets deep inside Ukraine, those those Shahid or Garan um, drones have to go a long way and they're quite slow. So, you know, if you can build up a picture of where they're going, which is not not, not easy, but it, it's there is often time to station um, mobile teams to move them to, to, to the likely um, routes and shoot them down. Also, you know, even just people with, with, with dushkas um, are, are getting much better with those with those weapons because they've had a lot of practice. Um, and so once you learn how to lead um, targets, uh, even even kind of crew-served, uh, non-radar-laid uh, gunner, gunnery can be quite effective. Um, so they, they are getting better, and it's notable that the Russians have changed uh, their tactics as a result. So instead of kind of drip-feeding um, lots and lots of, of shahids um, for, for several months, which they did, um, which primarily served to kind of exhaust Ukrainian uh, air defense ammunition of various kinds, although they, they weren't ever firing the really big stuff, um, but uh, the, the, the interception rates have got good enough that the Russians are now kind of saving up their, their production, uh, the Iranian production allocations until they have, you know, large amounts, maybe 30, 40. And then not just even sending them out as a big salvo, but uh, sending a few early um, in order to try and kind of work out where those air defenses actually are. Um, so they'll send a few to begin with see what lights up um and then if they manage to work out that their air defense is in a particular area they'll then change the routing of of the main kind of strike wave to try and avoid it um so that that's that's both an example of russia learning um and adapting but it's also a testament to how effective um you know the ukrainian defense measures against those now are um so yeah that they're, they're having some success there the um uav problem at the front lines uh, is more tricky partly because there's such a variety of systems from small quadcopters um, uh, up to the, the, the four-post and, and Orlan uh, male-class UAVs. The Orlan is, is one of the biggest problems because it can fly above the range of manpads uh, and, and uh, gunnery. And so essentially what that means is in order to shoot them down, Ukraine has to use SAMs, um, so radar-guided uh, surface-to-air missile systems like OSA or BUK. Uh, and so that is that is one of the things that's drawing um, the, so many of their so much of their ammunition capacity. Um, and there's a because, huge asymmetry there on cost, right? Those Orlans cost a lot less than the yeah. The Orlans cost I think about eighty five to hundred thousand dollars, give or take. Um, so they're they're not nothing, um, but there you know they're, there is an asymmetry also to to Russia's ability to keep producing those, vice the the finite nature of of air defense ammunition um, as as a global supply that can be accessed. Um, and, uh, yeah, so they have to be engaged because you, you, the Ukrainians can't leave those, those Orlans up over the front lines because, um, when there is a UAV up giving a real time feed, um, artillery is just so lethal, um, because it can be very, very rapidly, um, spotted and adjusted to get accurate fire, even without, uh, laser guided shells and they can use laser guided shells. Um, so yeah, it's, um. The UA counter UAV battle, I think, is probably the most important facet of the the sort of I hesitate to use, say air war. My my instinct is to put 
UAVs being used for artillery directing into into the land environment <laughs> in my head. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, in terms of the impact on the battlefield, the ebb and flow of the UAV and counter UAV um, contest is is kind of one of the key t- key determinants of of battlefield success for both sides. Um, and so, as you'd expect, there's a lot of uh, adaptation going back and forth. And it is worth noting as, as you know that there are asymmetric ways for those sorts of things to also affect the the more traditional side of the air war. So one of the things that um, Ukraine will will no doubt be looking at is uh, ways to basically hurt the VKS's ability to to put pressure on them that aren't surface to missile systems or fighters that they that they don't have at the moment uh, in terms of competitive fighters. So things like going after um, the the VKS communication systems, going after the the um, air bases potentially, trying to force them further back because Ukraine uh, because Russia doesn't use tankers regularly to support its tactical fighters or, or its attack aircraft. Um, if you can force them to to use air bases further back, that will significantly limit their tactical options uh, and persistence near the near the lines. Um, that that was so, yeah. Dara's really asymmetric plan for confronting this. Right? Yeah, absolutely, um, and it's it's a good one. Um, but again, with, without going into into specifics, it, it's worth noting that one of the uh, asymmetries between Russia and the West, you know, we we look at uh, a lot of Western military um, practitioners and theorists look at all of these UAVs and and you know things like long range loitering munition type UAVs. I go, you know, this is a huge problem. Um, you know, we're not set up. How do we defend against this stuff? We'd need loads. You know, it'd be completely uneconomical to field enough air defenses to to have coverage like that. Um, well, actually, Russia does have that kind of air defense lay down. Um, you know, they they have a lot of Pansir and Tor uh, and SA-17 and older Tunguskas. So, yes, UAVs are absolutely. Um, a potential way to, to put pressure on the Russian on the VKS, um, and it's definitely something that that's being looked at. But people, I think, often forget quite how lethal uh, and extensive the Russian ground-based air defense laydown is. Although the Ukrainians um, have had successes, right? Just recently, they had a strike that almost succeeded all the way in the suburbs of Moscow against a gas compressor station. Right? That's huge way to go from Ukraine all the way to Moscow, presumably across many air defense zones that they completely bypassed. Yeah, I mean, you know, Russian crews are are human uh, and often not not necessarily uh, sometimes drunk, right? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say not not necessarily serving in the best of, best possible circumstances, but um, you know, Russia's a big place. Um, even their air defense laydown ha- laydown has gaps, but it's also worth remembering that that you know, small UAVs are not going to go that far um, because of the just the ability to store power um whether it's electric batteries or or, or small um gas powered engines um if you want something to go a long way even if it's quite slow it will generally have to be quite big and so the number of of UA, uas and uav capabilities that can reach out that far is much smaller than the the kind of total inventory of of small uavs that that ukraine plays around with um very successfully um so yeah if it, <laughs> So occasionally you kind of end up coming back to his physics still applies. Um, you, if you want something to go a long way, particularly if you want it to go a long way fast, it's going to be large um, and therefore expensive and therefore you won't have huge numbers of them. Um, the, the, you know, even the Shahid 136, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's not a small thing. 
um, when you see them. You know, it's, it's about 200 kilograms. It, it's quite a big um, thing, given the perception of these as, really, as, as small, cheap, cheerful UAS. Yes, they are um, compared to regular things, but the trade-off for their range, even at that size, um, is that they're quite slow. Um, so yeah, it's uh, there are definitely options there, but it's it's not as easy as um, sort of some of the the enthusiasts for for um, the transformative power of of UAV swarms make it sound. If you want something to swarm, you have to be able to afford large numbers of it. And if you want it to go a long way, it's going to be big. And if you want it to be multi-mode, multifunctional or accurate, then it has to have a seeker, which is expensive, even if the airframe is cheap. And if you want it to go through short-range air defenses, you probably want it to be fast and maneuverable, which drives more cost and complexity. And you, you very quickly end up with missiles, in effect. And then why don't those swarm? Well, because nobody can afford them in the quantities to regularly use them in huge quantities. Um, so, so everything yeah. everything has trade-offs and there's no miracle weapon and there's a reaction to every action and that's really one of the reinforced lessons of this war that we talk a lot about on this podcast and on that note thank you so much guys this has been such a fascinating discussion going so deep into this issue of air defenses obviously a big concern if those stocks are dwindling but as hopefully listeners heard on this pod today from both of you there are options that the Ukrainians can take some of them will require support from us. So maybe a dozen or so Gripens can be delivered to the Ukrainians in the near future and can dramatically help them in this. And Dara, your plan for asymmetric strikes against air bases and port facilities and maybe ships to prevent the Russians from achieving that air superiority, even with the lack of air defenses, I think is a sound one as well that I'm sure the Ukrainians are thinking through. Uh, also so thank you so much this was great hope to have both of you back soon and uh, enjoy your week thanks thanks so much